Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 262 of the podcast. It's September 12th, 2016. My guest today is uh, Stephen J. Spear. He is author of the fantastic book, The High Velocity Edge, How Market Leaders Leverage Operational Excellence to Beat the Competition. Steve is a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management. He recently taught a summer course, as he's done the past few years, on Lean and Six Sigma for the Leaders for Global Operations program. Uh, I actually graduated uh, from that program in 1999 when MIT was still basically teaching TQM in that summer course. It was before Steve uh, came over to MIT. He also teaches executive education programs for MIT Sloan and, and does a lot of speaking and consulting work. Steve was previously a guest in episodes 58 and 87, if you want to go into the archives and find those. I'm really happy to have him back on the show after it's been uh, six years. Steve is going to be one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming Northeast Lean Conference which is being held October 4th and 5th in Massachusetts. It's uh, produced by GBMP. I hope you will check it out. It's, I've participated in past years. It's always been great. And you'll also get to meet Bruce Hamilton of Toast Kaizen fame. So if you want to learn more about that, go to northeastleanconference.org. If you want links to uh, Steve's website, his books, um, I'm also linking to an article that we talked about here in the episode called Beyond the Jargon. He's uh, shared a PDF of that article. Um, for all of that, go to leanblog.org slash 262. Steve, hi. Thank you so much for joining us again here on the podcast. Oh, hey. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about uh, you know, two different articles that, that you shared. Um, you want to talk first about one uh, you know, titled Beyond the Jargon. And as is, is you wrote in the article, you know, jargon like uh, you know, Gemba, Kaizen, Lean, statistical process control often seems irrelevant to people in healthcare and, and maybe even you know, contrary to the medical approach. Can, can you sort of elaborate on, on that thought and maybe talk about how we can help people in healthcare see the parallels and, and the relevance of, of these terms, whether we use that specific jargon or not? Oh, sure. So um, uh, indulge me a little bit. I'll just walk, walk this through. So um, what we're really concerned about is a basic phenomenon, and it's the ability of certain organizations to uh, deliver uh, far more value into the marketplace uh, quicker and easier uh, than their counterparts. And, and when you, you run that through, more value quicker, easier, what it means is that um, the benefits accrue to everybody. It's not an either-or, you know, to the benefit of the customer at the expense of the uh, supplier, the benefit of the customer at the expense of the employee. If it's uh, better, faster, easier, it's better for everybody. So that's the core phenomenon. And the context for everybody is that in order to deliver value, whether you deliver a lot or a little, fast or slow, um, easy or hard, to deliver value means uh, trying to um, harmonize the efforts of many people uh, towards some common purpose. And those efforts might be uh, something way upstream like uh, development, somewhere midstream like design, or the fabrication delivery of a product or service, but it requires this uh, um, choreography harmonization of the efforts of many towards some common purpose. So, you know, so what we have is um, that's the common operating condition. We have uh, real differences in the ability to manage well within that operating um, environment, 
And so the question gets to, why is that? And uh, what you find is that the folks who do this exceptionally well um, understand that if you have very complex systems, which are dynamic, right, lots of people doing different things at different times, mm -hmm. and those complex dynamic systems are subject to uh, disturbance, uh, either internal disturbance, like, you know, I show up today, I'm not quite as focused because I'm tired, or my flight was later, I was drinking too much, or uh, subject to um, external disturbance, uh, bad weather, my customer, my supplier, my um, competitors have uh, changed the operating environment, that if you have these complex dynamic systems subject to disturbance, then they have to have the capacity for self-correction, um, internal self-correction. So that, that's a common theme, right? The, the common operating condition, the common challenge is this ability to self-correct and even self-improve, and the evidence is very, very strong that some manage that um, mixture much better than others. Yeah. All right, so underneath that, there has to be some sort of basic science of how you manage um, complex dynamic systems to achieve great results. So that's the starting point. Mm -hmm. Then what happens? Different communities um, look at exactly the same challenge, and they start uh, assigning labels, and labels are necessary, right? Because um, you know, if we didn't put a label on, you know, an apple, um, you know, you and I couldn't have a conversation about whether we wanted an apple or an orange. But anyway, start assigning labels. But the, the problem with labels is that um, they start acquiring um, meaning to a subset community, which is not transferable to other communities. And I think when we start looking across the disciplines of Lean Six Sigma, TQM, uh, and, and all these other um, movements and efforts towards helping people deliver more value to market quicker, easier than they would otherwise. What you find is that the lexicon originally was meant to be um, clarifying for those using the lexicon. What ends up happening, it becomes confusing. So you see this particularly uh, trying to make the transition from um, the industrial world into the healthcare world. Because in the industrial world, when you and I, let's say, use the word Gemba, it has meaning to us. It's not just a word which is sort of a bastardized Japanese word. It means, you know, you and I both know, oh, Gemba means I have to get um, onto the shop floor. I have to get close to the occurrence of events. I have to get close to the occurrence of problems that are affecting those events. And I understand the necessity of doing that because um, if I don't get close, I'm going to miss uh, subtlety and idiosyncrasy that is really fundamental to understanding the event. And if I don't have that deep understanding of what's fundamental to the event, then I'm uh, really um, handicapped in my ability to improve it. All right, so that, that, that works fine for you and me and, you know, our other friends who think of Gemba and all the rich, deep meaning behind those five English letters, yeah. right? Now you say Gemba to a guy who's uh, trained up as a doctor or a nurse. And they look at you and say, what, what the hell is Gemba? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and then it gets explained through this very shorthand, um, abbreviated uh, explanation. It's like, go to the shop floor. Well, you know, you and I, when we hear that, you know, that go to the shop floor carries, uh, conveys so much um, meaning and importance, and to them it's like, well, I don't even have a shop floor, I have a bedside. <laughs> right. Right? So I think that's the problem, and I think the, so anyway, that, that's our problem, and, you know, thinking this through kind of like disciplined A3 problem solving, we always have to go, you know, what's the problem, the presentation, what's the cause, and how do we uh, countermeasure, counteract, uh, treat that? So I think the... The problem is our inability to communicate into the healthcare um, sector. So our inability as uh, folks who've come to a deep appreciation of how industry is successful of value to market um, at speed with ease, 
and affect a, a sector that really would benefit from those lessons, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that's the problem, the lack of communication. I think the root cause gets to we're using lexicon, which has great meaning to us, which has no meaning to them. So, I, you know, what I have found um, as a useful um, countermeasure to that is actually re-express exactly the same ideas with their rich uh, and subtle meaning, mm-hmm. re-express it in terms familiar to the audience. So, for example, you know, just picking on this term countermeasure, you and I both know, oh, countermeasure, all right, I get it. It means a, a change in how work is done based on um, a response to some root cause, which is uh, an explanation for a problem. Yeah. Well, countermeasure to a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist has actually little meaning. However, if you say to them, treatment plan, their, their brain goes through exactly through the same cycle of, oh, the reason we have treatment plans is because a patient came in um, presenting symptoms. See, they have symptoms. We have problems. And uh, those symptoms, uh, we did a diagnosis for those symptoms. You know, you and I do root cause analysis. They do diagnoses. Mm. And when we did those diagnoses, we found what we thought were some uh, causes for the symptoms that were occurring. And, be, and in response to those causes, we're going to develop a treatment plan. And um, I, I, I think what we need coming out of industry is to respect the fact that um, we've spent a lot of time developing our lexicon and uh, assigning um, not only meaning, cognitive meaning to it, but uh, emotional norm value meaning to it, and that other communities have their own lexicon. Yeah. And that if we want to communicate well with those communities, it becomes wickedly important to respect the lexicon, the meaning, and the values behind it and communicate through their lexicon and not insist that they... Um, learn ours in a sense as a second language so anyway um it, how's that how's that in terms of making sense yeah no that makes that makes great sense um yeah it's interesting in terms of the jargon you know when i first got into healthcare, there's challenges in the other direction when you hear or even as a patient you know uh, take that medication prn you're like what and they I, may, oh and as as needed i'm like well why don't you just say as needed right, i think right, it's right, the right. same number of syllables as prn or you know the, those doctors are locum tenens i'm like what and I'm like oh they're they're here temp you know a temporary assignment i'm like well why don't you say that but right, right um it's interesting yeah you say that you know the context even a word like kaizen you know people say like oh that means continuous improvement and and there's there's a, a lot more context even behind a simple word um, like that. So what I hear you saying is to try to try to understand their their language, translate it when you can, but but also make sure they're understanding the context behind the word. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and the thing is, when you go into healthcare, um, you know, if you spend enough time there, you're going to pick up um, you're going to pick up their lingo. And be able to express. Well, here, here, first of all, the observation, right? So, if you listen to PRN, I guess is the acronym you used. You'll probably see that when um, clinicians talk to each other, um, they'll actually use those abbreviations out of context. So, when they're talking about medication, they'll talk about you know take the medication PRN as needed. But then they'll um, they'll be talking about something else, like uh, how often do you have your car washed? Oh, you know, PRN depends on the weather, <laughs> right? And, and, and you'll start to um, internalize their lexicon and their meaning, and when you do so, uh, it'll be whole, you start gaining, I wouldn't say native fluency, but you'll gain some, some modicum of fluency in, in their language uh, so you can express your ideas 
in ways that they don't have to translate. You're doing the heavy lifting of doing the yeah. translating. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I think even within the you know quote unquote lean community, there there are translation issues where the one thing I hear all the time, somebody will say, "Oh, I'm going to do my first kaizen next week." And what they really mean is a, a Kaizen event or what people in healthcare would call a rapid improvement event. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a shorthand where, you know, not, you know, a Kaizen event is not the only form of Kaizen. I, I might, I might push back and say, so I'm right. curious if you see other, other cases of, you know, even within a field where you would hope we have common definitions that there's maybe uh, troublesome variation in terms of, of the phrase or the approach. Well, yeah, so I, I think what you're saying there about just even within industry is that uh, these um, terms have uh, really deep, rich meaning. And, again, I think the meaning is both, um, you know, sort of cognitive, rational, um, you know, action verb oriented, but also um, norms and values, right? Mm -hmm. So when you say Gemba, um, and you mean it in a way that is probably high fidelity to um, folks at Toyota, it's not just the physical action of going to the event, but it, it's arriving um, as an active, respectful uh, observer, learner, who's arriving without a preconception, precondition, um, a willingness and actually um, intense desire to observe it empathetically, the situation that's going on, right? So even that one word, um, when we start using it, you know, again, it carries uh, both... Um, normative value of what you're supposed to do when you're using that word, but also um, almost uh, an emotional, moral norm, um, yeah. value overlay. But then, but then you have folks who, uh, they just heard the term Gemba and didn't have the chance to uh, experience it, again, in this high-fidelity fashion. So for them, Gemba means go to the shop floor. Uh, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't carry all the extra um, <laughs> meaning associated with it. Yeah. So um, anyway, you know, earlier on you said uh, about doctors, you know, well, why don't you speak in normal, you know, plain English? You know, if, if you want it taken as necessary, say take as necessary. And I think even within the industrial community, we um, probably should follow your advice on that yeah. and then sometimes say, hey, you know, let's go see the problem and see if we can yeah. really understand it from the perspective of the associate doing the work. Yes, that's a longer statement than Gemba, right. but... Um, sometimes necessary. Yeah, I mean, you know, it seems like language can can create clarity and common bond, or I, I think sometimes this happens both with, you know, quote-unquote lean experts or with physicians, it creates barriers. If somebody says, you know, we, uh, we, we did some Nimawashi, and now we're going to Yokoten or Kamishi buy boards. What? <laughs> like, I, I even have trouble following that yeah. string of Japanese words. All um, right, and then you're like, uh, yeah, sounds great. Uh, sign me <laughs> up for that one, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And, and again, actually, you know, I, I was being facetious, but it, it, it kicks in, right? So someone uses a term, and then we hear the term, and we don't actually understand what they mean by the term. But then we get into all this uh, cognitive bias stuff, which is we don't say, um, hey, Mark, what the heck did you mean by all that stuff? You know, um, actually, I can't even repeat the words back. First of all, no. tell me what you said, and don't <laughs> tell me what you meant. But it was like, you know, instead, what we, we, we're locked into the the head nodding of, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, I want to do that because what I don't want to do is look stupid right. and, well, and uh, give the appearance I don't understand. Well, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, if I threw those words out, I might be happy you didn't question it and push back because maybe I don't really understand <laughs> Right, right. Um, but you, know, you, you said one thing I, I wanted to uh, maybe 
come back to, you said, if I was transcribing this one sentence, I believe you said lean comma six sigma comma TQM as a sort of three separate things. But there's also this, this terminology out there where people talk about lean six sigma as a single thing. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on that distinction or, or terminology that's out there, um, how that relates to um, you know, I think, you know, we were talking before the podcast, you used the phrase fidelity to Toyota, which I thought was an interesting phrase. Can you, right. what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So let, let, let's, uh, let's, um, hook this next piece off of, uh, the phrase fidelity. So there's the fidelity to Toyota and there's the fidelity to, uh, Edwards Deming. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's uh, fidelity to some of the other real, uh, luminaries who, um, came up with these ideas. Uh, you know, whether it's Schuhart, um, uh and so on and so on. Now, uh, again, you take a look at each of them. And, well, first of all, let's step back for a second and say, it's not obvious to me that um, Deming had much influence on Toyota's thinking. It's not obvious that Toyota had much influence on Deming's thinking. And the other organization I've um, written quite a bit about is the, the Navy's uh, experience with nuclear power, the Navy um, Nuclear Propulsion Program. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty um, clear that Toyota and Deming did not influence uh, the founder of that program, uh, Hyman Rickover. All right? So you have mm -hmm. these three sort of independent efforts. Now, what you get is three independent efforts to uh, come to some um, deep, deep understanding of how you manage the efforts of uh, dozens, hundreds, thousands, towards some common purpose, right? Because, you know, the folks at Toyota, um, Edwards Deming, and uh, the Navy Reactor Program were dealing with exactly the same common challenge of uh, this uh, harmonization of human effort towards common purpose. And not surprisingly, they came up with some um, real common um, ideas, uh, fundamentals, you know, because each of them were dealing with these systems, like we mentioned before, which were, are incredibly complex. Um, in constant movement, so dynamic, and subject to constant disruption. And uh, all three um, independently recognize that uh, for all the declaration you can make on um, how you think things are going to work, you also have to have this very intense um, uh, feedback uh, and capability for uh, self-detection, self-correction, self-improvement, right? So that, that, that's common across all those, those three. What ends up happening, and, and, and let me just add one other thing that's real common, is that um, the folks at Toyota put a huge, huge emphasis on um, the actions of leaders to influence the, um, the values, the norms, and the behaviors of those um, they support. Mm -hmm. And Admiral Rickover has an you know, incredible reputation for his, let's say, um, somewhat uh, caustic social skills. But fundamentally, he was constantly emphasizing the, the point of, leadership encouraging these uh, dynamic capabilities for um, problem-seeking and problem-solving. And he, he has a line, I remember, something like, um, you can um, delegate authority, but you can never delegate responsibility, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and if you look back at Edwards Deming, you know, he had a, a collection of um, different uh, tools, techniques to gain um, dynamic control, you know, feedback, as we would have learned at MIT, you know, dynamic control of systems. But the amount of time he spent talking about the role of leadership and um, uh, special causes and general causes and profound knowledge, I mean, 
Deming also was really talking to leaders and how they had to manage organizations um, so the organizations had these capabilities of self-correction, self-improvement. Right. So that, that, that's the common, and that's you know, sort of plain English. Um, then what happens? You start developing a lexicon. And not only do you develop a lexicon, but you start talking about the tools um, each of these luminaries um, developed and used to achieve the um, or express the underlying fundamental common principles. So in the case of Toyota, for example, you have uh, things like um, uh, standard work in Judoka. In the case of Deming, uh, you have things like um, statistical process control, uh, run charts, uh, and upper and lower limits. And Rick over within the Navy community had his own terms. So what ends up happening? Um, you and I who are newbies to these uh, quote-unquote movements, mm -hmm. we don't get um, leveled up in terms of the basic phenomena and the basic thinking. Um, what we get taught is the, the tools. Right. And, um, you know, and again, you start thinking about um, how we train up as engineers. So in engineering, you know, Mechanical engineering is what I studied. You go in and you know, you, they, they put something on a desk and they say, this is an object. It has a mass. This guy named Isaac Newton, he told us <laughs> if you put a force on a mass, it wants to go faster and faster. And we often don't observe that because, you know, there's friction and viscosity in the world. But, you know, we're going to show you actually about this acceleration thing, right? And then they, then they start teaching you tools, right? You get equations as a form of a tool. Uh, maybe you get a piece of software as a form of a tool. You get all these different tools, but you always come back um, – to the basic principle about forces causing objects to accelerate. Now, this is, I think the problem we've had in the industrial world and in the organizational world uh, more generally is that uh, there, there is this very fundamental parsimonious basic science about managing these complex dynamic systems which are subject to constant uh, disruption. People don't learn and internalize and socialize on the fundamentals first, mm -hmm. they're handed the tools. It's like mm -hmm. if you went to engineering school, they didn't tell you about Newton, but they gave you MATLAB. <laughs> and, and, and so then when, when, when you, you get tools, not surprisingly, Toyota was dealing with an operating environment different from Deming. Mm -hmm. So um, the tools they developed to express um, this deep basic understanding are different than Deming's tools. So then you get situations where you have lean tools and, you know, people who sort of almost ritualistically coalesce around lean tools, and then you get people who, um, um, because they're exposed to them, they um, coalesce almost ritualistically around Six Sigma tools, mm -hmm. and then someone has a, an epiphany saying, oh, what we should do is combine the communities, and we'll call it Lean Six Sigma, or Lean, you know, whatever the term is, mm -hmm. and we'll have a, basically saying we'll have a more um, holistic approach to the use of tools. So anyway, that, that, that's my interpretation, is that um, the reason we have this uh, fragmentation and then these sort of funny attempts to um, um, synthesize right. is because as, as practitioners, we don't come back to the basic science. We just look at the tools and, you know, fo you know identify by the tools and not the, the core principles. Yeah, and I, th I think, you know, synthesis is a good goal. There's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, people will debate sometimes, oh, is a, is a Pareto chart a lean tool or a Six Sigma tool? I'm like, well, it predates both of those. And it's right. just a good, helpful thing to use. Um, 
but I, I think sometimes the synthesis, the attempted synthesis breaks down. Um, I, I think this is somebody else who used this analogy once. You know, uh, a cat and a poodle can coexist in a room or even in a cage, but that doesn't make them a single animal called a catoodle. You know, that they're both, <laughs> they're both still there and they, they, can, right. they, 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 can, they can play with each other and, and be fine. But I think, you know, I've, I've heard people complain. They say, well, you know, I was interested in learning about lean, and so I was told, or I found, well, I could learn this thing called Lean Six Sigma. I'll learn both. I'll learn two things. And then, you know, it turns out the, the Lean Six Sigma um, education or program is really 90% Six Sigma, deep statistics. Again, you know, perfectly valid, fine uh, methods. And then they learn a little bit of 5S. I'm like, well, that, that really sounds like Six Sigma as opposed to being a synthesis right. of the two. Right. Well, so you start thinking about the... Um the commonality. The commonality is you're trying to gain um, some dynamic control over a complex system. Mm -hmm. Now, some complex systems, um, be they you know um, high volume, low variety, repeatable processes, do lend themselves to uh, and actually may necessitate mm -hmm. the collection of um, very large data, which can only be accessed statistically. Yeah. Um, and there's other situations you find yourself in, which. Um, it might be uh, uh, an event which occurs with far less frequency, greater variety, and in that case, um, statistical uh, analysis is not the tool you need. You actually need this very binary, mm -hmm. uh, something that's working as predicted or it's not working as predicted. Right. And if it's working as predicted, I can continue, and if it's not, I have to come back and investigate. Actually, Mark, you know, we started this conversation off with um, talking about healthcare. Mm -hmm. So he healthcare does the same thing, right? When you, when you trying to understand um, the experience of a population, you use a lot of statistical tools, and they kind of fall under the umbrella of public health, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you're trying to understand the experience of an individual, um, you take a different approach, which is, uh, you know, obviously not statistical because you're looking at, uh, at, at one. Um, but you, now you start getting into things which um, depend much more on your causal reasoning and things are or, or are not normal and that, that sort of thing. Um, now, no one would ever argue that, um, oh, no, we, we, you know, we don't do public health, we do medicine, or we don't do medicine, we mm -hmm. do public health. Um, for folks who describe themselves as healthcare professionals, they do the one that's right, um, uh, depending on the conditions. I was just reading up on um, uh, AIDS and the advance in AIDS treatment. And, you know, if you really want to visualize it, there was this very famous photo, and you think about just the huge visual contrast, this famous photo of this uh, young man um, on his deathbed uh, uh, being attended to by his parents and his priest. And it's heartbreaking. The guy's got all this discoloration uh, of his skin, and, and his parents are distraught, and the priest is doing his best to console uh, the family, but he's clearly uh, moved by this, you know, like this curse that's been uh, come onto this guy. And then, um, you know, juxtapose that picture with uh, uh, Magic Johnson, you know, playing basketball in the Olympics, part of the dream team, and he, he's got the same darn disease, and, you know, he's playing um, basketball at the highest possible level. Now, you start looking at the transition there. Well, how did that happen? Um, initially, um, AIDS and HIV was treated statistically because it was such a poorly understood experience that it was just a matter of trying to identify who had what symptoms in what conditions to figure out at least a pattern of 
where this thing started to emerge. Mm. And then with that, um, there was an advance in understanding, of, oh, it, it seems to be related to infection, and, and the infection seems to be conveyed in these different ways. But now that we know it's an infection, we click over from the statistical to the pharmaceutical, um, trying to understand the internal biological chemical mechanisms which go on. And then once we have that, now it kicks over to a medical problem where we can actually uh, treat people um, uh, to uh, treat um, HIV as a chronic condition. Now, you would never say, oh, one is better than the other. Um, it's just that one was more appropriate in the circumstance than the other. Mm -hmm. So anyway, to say that someone is trained up as um, you know, it's Six Sigma or lean um, all the time, it, 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 it's not right. Yeah. In, in both cases, it's um, each has a set of tools associated with itself, which are meant to give you um, better understanding of these very, very complex dynamic uh, situations. Right. Um, and you use the, the tool which is appropriate at the time, but not, not, not forgetting that um, the fellow associated with the advancement of lean tools, Demings, really was focusing on tools as a means towards an end, and, mm -hmm. and the end was profound knowledge. Yeah. And um, in the case of Toyota, they also have tools, but again, it's a, it's a means to an end. It's, right. uh, it's, you know, one of the Toyotas, so the Lexus is the relentless pursuit of perfection, right? You may never get it, but you pursue it, and the way you pursue it is uh, the Toyota um, phrase of uh, good thinking, good products, that you have to advance your thinking, right? So both mm -hmm. Toyota and Deming come at this as the basic problem is learning. Right. Um, and there are certain tools in certain situations which help you learn better or not. But anyway, to have mm -hmm. sort of uh, this sort of uh, blind ritualistic adherence to some and not the other mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, one, I don't think it um, shows fidelity to the geniuses who invented these things, mm -hmm. um, and it's also not productive. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you know, there's, um, you know, there's all sorts of different biases that people bring to the table when they're trying to learn new approaches. One is you know, a bias uh, toward tools. I'm going to learn some new tools. And, you know, I think, you know, you, we, we can talk about Taichi Ono and Shigeo Shingo and others from, from the past. But, in, you know, in, in current day, uh, Jamie Benini at Toyota does, I think, uh, an amazing job of articulating to uh, outside organizations, including those in healthcare, that that they are supporting and helping that, you know, yes, there are tools, but there's also, you know, a mindset or a philosophy um, that that starts to get into the realm of, of not just problem solving tools, but management system and culture. And, you know, I think a lot of people are either just not exposed to that or, you know, may, maybe they're comfortable with their existing philosophy and, and they're just looking for um, some quick hit tools. I, I mean, I think that's I think that that seems to be a big challenge out there. And, you know, co copying something or, um, you know, learning it and, and being done learning as opposed to continuing to learn and you know your, your different articles here that we've linked to you talk about the competitive advantage of, of a learning organization um, there's probably nobody out there um, who's becoming highly successful just by copying somebody else right no no you can't because again the, yeah. you know, the, the basic the basic condition right and you know, we come back to you trying to manage these very complex um, organizations many people towards common purpose um, nothing is ever Stable. There is no steady mm -hmm. state, right? The, the world keeps changing, and your, your own internal world keeps changing. Um, so if the world keeps changing, what that means is that the world changes from situations which you think you have some understanding into situations which you have far less understanding. And, and, and the longer you go, 
the less and less you understand and the less and less relevant you are mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a changed world. Now, again, you know, I'm saying what others have said uh, more authoritatively and eloquently, but in a world which is getting increasingly connected um, in very nonlinear ways, right, yeah. highly networked ways, and in which uh, things move uh, more freely, more quickly, and those things could be ideas, finances, people, technology. Um, the world is changing faster and faster, which means that um, it is ma- making your current capability and your current knowledge um, less and less relevant, uh, faster and faster and faster. Right. So the only way to um, keep pace is to learn um, better, faster, more consistently about what you should be doing and how you should be doing it, because what you were doing and how you were doing it um, may have mattered uh, a day, a week, a month, a year ago, but for sure it it matters less right now. And, 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 And a day, a week, a month from now, it'll matter even less. Well, and you know, when you, I, I love your phrase. Um, if if I had jotted this down correctly, complex dynamic systems subject to constant disruption. That certainly sounds like healthcare today. That sounds a lot like um, you know the 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 Eric Ries definition of a startup. You know, uh, uh, organizations facing high degrees of uncertainty is is at least part of that definition. Um, you know, one one other thing I wanted to ask you about though is. You know, the, you know, hospitals would self-identify as complex, dynamic systems subject to constant disruption. But you know, I think I've, I've heard this a lot. People in in healthcare will really kind of, uh, you know, poo-poo manufacturing. Um, you know, somebody from manufacturing, you know, we can maybe be self-deprecating and call ourselves, you know, uh, you know, knuckle draggers and you know, right. factory rats and whatever. But um, you know, as you say in the one article, people, outsiders often think manufacturing is deceptively routine. I was wondering right. if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Oh, sure. So um, we, we, we all have this problem, right, which is uh, you know, look at something from uh, a distance, and it, the execution appears uh, smooth and graceful and flawless and all of that. And so it's easy to conclude it's easy. Um, you know, Go to uh, a baseball game and see uh, an outfielder chase down a fly ball and, and catch it with seeming a sort of nonchalant uh, approach. Say, so, oh, that must be easy. <laughs> right. when, when you know any of us who've ever played little league realize just how ridiculously difficult it is to track the ball off the bat and know where to be to uh, have it end up in our glove. When it, you know, when we played little league, you know, ball or you know, played high school, whatever. If the ball ended up in our glove, it was almost like miraculous. <laughs> and, and you come to appreciate just how um, hard it is to practice that skill that uh, you can chase down a ball, which is moving about 100 miles an hour, and you know, get it in a deep corner in front of the green monster at, uh, at Fenway Park. So, so you get the same thing also. You go to the ballet, and you, you look, oh, wow, you know, that, 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 um, it looks so easy. Now, if you happen to have a front row seat or a seat on the stage, you realize just how hard the ballerina is working. If you have a chance to see the ballerina in practice um, and see the number of falls and drops and twists and, and, and sprains and injuries that um, are required to get to the point of the flawless execution. Well, you know, you know, for those of us who work inside industry, it's the same thing. It's, um, it requires so much constant adjustment um, to make sure that the external user's experience um, is, is flawless. Um, now, the thing is, the external user 
they don't see what's going on inside in terms of the, the need to constantly um, design, develop, practice, rehearse, correct, uh, modify, um, you know, both short-term and long-term. All they see is flawless. And so they must uh, come to the assumption that, oh, if it's flawless, it must be mm -hmm. easy. Right? And, you know, I was having this conversation yesterday is that um, there's a huge amount of uh, constant dynamic variability going on. Now, we can choose to run our systems in such a way that we absorb that in how we manage our systems so the end, uh, so the customer, the beneficiary doesn't experience that dynamic variability, or we can run our own systems in a, in a much more um, ballistic, mm. rote, non-responsive way. Um, so we basically ignore the dynamic variability, but what we do is we impose it on the beneficiary of our work, right, because now they're getting this huge variety and experience. Um, yeah, I'll give you just, you know, link, making the link between industry and healthcare. So you, you take a look at, uh, you know, biological systems, the human body, right? So, um, you know, you can be sitting uh, someplace, and you give every outward appearance of total uh, stability. Uh, of course, what's going on inside is your body is making these constant adjustments to uh, cognitive load, physical load, um, blood sugar levels. Uh, you know, you, you have the window open, a cool breeze hits you. Um, your body's making these micro-adjustments in terms of uh, um, vascular flow of blood for cooling and heating and that sort of thing. Now, externally, um, you're not aware of any of this, and uh, you're, you're not affected by any of these internal changes, right? But your body's working very, very hard to uh, absorb that variability so that... Um, your external experience uh, is not marked by it at all. Um, anyway, it's one or the other. So the folks in healthcare um, may look at uh, what happens in industry, and since they only see the car which rolls off the assembly line, they have no idea of um, the huge amount of uh, dynamic change that's required in the designing the car, designing the system that makes the car, making the car, et cetera. <laughs> Um, as, as we start to wrap up, let me bring it back to healthcare again. Um, you know, you talked earlier about this goal of better, faster, easier. Some organizations really standing out by delivering more value quicker and easier. Is there anyone that you've seen in healthcare recently who is kind of reaching those heights or at least um, on a good path toward that? Right. So uh, let me preface this with a very important caveat that. Um, my work typically goes very, very deep in, into an organization. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy who understands. So I, I can get into, like, a lot of real nuance. Uh, I'm not the guy who has a good sense of population. Mm -hmm. So in terms of um, a sense of the population in healthcare, and there are others who understand much better who's actually advancing and, you know, moving the needle significantly versus not. Mm -hmm. um, my, my impression, though, is that um, by the little bit of the literature that I see and read in the conferences that I attend and the conversations of which I'm part, that um, healthcare as a sector still hasn't um, identified the management of complex dynamic systems, many people towards common purpose. They haven't identified that as a key condition um, which they have to uh, be concerned about and for which there's a fundamental basic science which will inform their efforts. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a look at uh, other things like infectious disease, um, in healthcare, they're constantly trying to advance their understanding of the basic science to
to inform the development of medications and, and their use and application. Um, similarly, um, you know, they're constantly trying to advance uh, their understanding of the basic science of um, genetic code and how it affects um, our, our experiences. So there's a lot of places they do this, but it's not obvious to me that, um, aside from very isolated pockets, they're looking at um, these complex human systems and trying to understand the basic science by which they can be managed um, far better. Well, there's still um, a lot of work to be done, and um, you know, I, I appreciate what, what you're doing to help uh, move people's thinking along. Um, one way you're going to be doing that, you know, as Ed mentioned at the top, is the upcoming Northeast Lean Conference that's, that's being put on by uh, the good folks at GBMP, October 4th and 5th. Um, NortheastLeanConference.org is the website. You're going to be one of the keynote speakers. What's the, the topic or, or the theme that, that you're going to be talking about there, Steve? Yeah, it's all about the people. It's all about the people, Mark. And, I, you know, on this I feel uh, very confident that I'm channeling um, the, uh, the luminaries at Toyota, Edwards Deming, Admiral Rickover, and some of these others, that, uh, you know, you can go out into the marketplace and you can buy gear. Um, you want to make you want to make microchips. You know, people will sell you for tens of millions of dollars the equipment to make microchips and billions of dollars to build a clean room. I mean, the gear is out there. What is uh, very clear, uh, and this goes back to research all the way in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, some people buy the same gear as everybody else, and they get um, results far, far better. I mean, we're we're talking orders of magnitude yeah. better. We're not talking like micro percentages better. And if they're buying the same gear and they're running the same stuff through that gear. It can only be the people and their understanding of what to do with the gear onto the stuff, which is the difference. Yeah. So uh, I'll be talking. It's all about the people and managing the people in such a way that, um, and I'll, I'll just uh, lead the conference, but, uh, you know, kind of end this conversation with, uh, it's really fundamentally, if it's all about the people and people figuring out um, better things to do and better ways to do those things, then it's about um, everybody being an active learner and using the parlance of the day, um, it, it's really about converting everyone in your organization into a knowledge worker. That, yeah. that, that's the fundamental thing. It's all about the people and everyone as knowledge workers. Well, well, great. And I, I hope people will be able to attend and, and hear that message directly from you. There's still uh, a little bit of time to, uh, to register. I would encourage people check out the event um, in, in future years. It's a, it's a great annual event. And um, Glad you're going to be a part of that, Steve. Um, I, again, our guest has been uh, Steve Spear, um, author of um, The High Velocity Edge and a lot of great articles. Um, Steve, how can people find you on, on the web if they want to read more? Yeah, so I've got a, a website, uh, you know, www.thehighvelocityedge.com. I think we simplified that also. Um, not promising, but... Uh, Give a shot at um, www.hvellc.com. And, uh, you know, for um, real quick uh, mm -hmm. that works. Um, access to materials, uh, an email to um, um, hvellc at sendyourslides.com. And uh, in the subject, put hpe-hve, and you'll get a bunch of links. 
Okay, and I'll, I'll share that in show notes for the episode. If people are listening while driving, please don't try doing what Steve suggested while you're uh, going down the road, even if you're in a, uh, a quote-unquote self-driving vehicle. All right. Uh, yeah, no, but, no driving. Yeah, but um, Steve, thank you again so much for taking time uh, to, to be a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Mark, you're welcome, and, and thanks for asking me. It's really uh, it's good to catch up. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.